The theme of the Shepherds Conference this year, from which we have just returned, was summarized in one word, ashamed. Ashamed of the gospel, and obviously it was a clarion call not to be ashamed of the gospel. And so given that, I thought I would elaborate on that a bit more this morning. And I've entitled my discourse to you, Ashamed of the Gospel. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look primarily at verses 16 and 17. And while you're turning, may I remind you that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church there in Rome that had not only some very sophisticated, wealthy, well-educated Greeks, but also barbarians, the Greeks would call them. The reason they said that, called them barbarians, is because when they would hear them talk a language other than Greek, it just sounded like bar, 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 bar. And so they came up with the name barbarians. And so we would have been among that group, the barbarians. But that included people from many other uh, ethnicities, other languages, and there were people in that church that were also uh, slaves. There were free men, there were slaves. Some were very, very poor living in the slums, but it was a church that had the full gamut of society right there inside. And remember as well that the Apostle Paul now is probably writing from Corinth to them. And if he were to take off his cloak and you look at his back, it would look like spaghetti. He had been whipped so many times. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, he describes some of his beatings as a man who has had stripes without number. He had been beaten, imprisoned, everywhere he went. He was rejected in ways that we can't imagine. And yet, beloved, he was never ashamed of the gospel. For this reason, he writes in Romans 1, beginning in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Given the escalating wickedness in our culture, and the militant unbelief that we see growing all around us. It is easy to be threatened by the culture, even to be threatened by members in your own family. And in subtle ways, maybe imperceptible ways, we can become ashamed of the gospel. All of us need to be suspect of our spirituality and suspect of how ashamed we really are at times of the gospel. As I did inventory in my own heart, I find places where I am convicted. Far too many professing Christians today 
frankly, want a watered-down version of the gospel because it's not so offensive. Kind of a gospel light. And then, of course, there's this warm, fuzzy feeling with this kind of man-centered gospel that doesn't really offend anyone. It's, it's, it's man-centered. It's man-affirming. It's a gospel of self-fulfillment. And this is why the heretical prosperity gospel has flourished over the years. And now we have the neo-pagan, neo-Marxist, social justice woke gospel that has slithered into the church, a product of black liberation theology, striving for social salvation but never attaining it, assuming that racism is the number one problem in the world, and if we can somehow resolve that, everything will be wonderful. And of course, what we see is that that kind of a gospel cannot save anyone, even our society, much less save a man from his sin. And of course, this produces churches that are filled with people that are Christian in name only. A frightening concept. But in Romans, the book of Romans, God reveals the glory of the true gospel to each of us through his inspired writer, the Apostle Paul. He reveals the horror of our sinfulness and the glory of God's holiness and how we can be justified, how God justifies the ungodly and reconciles sinners to himself. And so here we learn of the riches of God's grace, the wonders of it all, that God not only saves, but he sanctifies. He makes us more into the image of Christ as we live out our lives, and ultimately he glorifies. And I want to remind you of these things, because, beloved, when you really grasp these things intellectually and in your heart, it motivates you to not only live out the gospel, but to proclaim it, come what may. That's why this is so important. So I wish to underscore three amazing truths that emerge from this passage, and there's many others that speak to this, and we will look at some of those as well. But some amazing truths about the gospel in salvation, what this really is. So we're going to look this morning at three things under three headings, the power of God for salvation, the plan of God to receive salvation, and the product of God in salvation. And my prayer is that you will rediscover, once again, what God has done for you when he saved you by his grace. And if you're here today and you don't know, don't know Christ, this is what he will do through the gospel if you will repent and place your faith in Christ. And again, when this happens, it mitigates against that fear that we tend to have to present the gospel. Because, beloved, when we really grasp these things, we will never again desire to reinvent the gospel or to redefine the gospel or to compromise the gospel so that other people might feel comfortable because to do so instantly robs the gospel of its glory and its power to save sinners. Now, I want you to notice that 
verse 15, first of all, and he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And again, as I've said earlier, uh, these are going to be, the recipients of this will be believers and unbelievers from all walks of life. And then he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why is that? Well, partially because, and I should say primarily because of number one, he knows that it is the power of God unto salvation. Again, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, as we all know, the unsaved resent the idea that they need saving. They don't like to hear that. I tuned into um, kind of a YouTube uh, interview that I found intriguing, and it was basically uh, a lesbian LGBTQ activist, and she was uh, supposedly an investigative journalist, and she was interviewing some of the uh, artists and record label executives here in Nashville um, because she was frustrated because the LGBTQ community is not more represented in the Christian contemporary music world. And in talking with one of the more popular artists that maybe some of you would know that follow these things, um, he was equally frustrated with their lack of representation. And together they mocked the notion that there are still too many Christians out there today that are hung up on sin. They're hung up on what they called worm theology, that we're all just worms. And so we're not inclusive because after all, God is a God of love and he includes everyone and you know how it gets distorted. And obviously these people are unregenerate. They do not realize that again, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Scripture is very clear about that. There's now no salvation for anyone who refuses to repent of their sins and, and understands that, that, that truly they are a sinner that sin is lawlessness, it is high treason against the most high God, that their lives in many ways violate God's commandments. They do not realize that all that we are and all that we do are fundamentally offensive to a holy God. Our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. They do not realize that Jesus died for our sins to save us from our sins, that he is the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2.2. However, as image bearers, we know biblically that all human beings know there is a God and that they are responsible to him. These people, everyone. There is an innate awareness of right and wrong. We read about this in Romans 2, beginning in verse 14. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, These not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But sinful man loves his sin 
And he refuses to acknowledge his sin. He has ways of justifying his sin and rationalizing his sin, excusing his sin, redefining his sin. And it's for this reason that Paul will go on in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, and say, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, catch this, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Dear friends, never underestimate the miracle of regeneration because apart from God doing that work within us, we would never believe, we would never be saved. Regeneration, of course, is that supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. There's literally a resurrection that takes place within the soul of a man, whereby the Spirit of God causes people to savingly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that process, there's just a radical transformation of their very nature. In regeneration, he changes the very desires of our hearts. The actions of our wills that begin to reflect the nature of God, who makes us new creatures in Christ. Oh, what an amazing thought. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul says in verse 17, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. In other words, when you come to saving faith in Christ because of the miracle of regeneration, he changes everything about you so you don't do what you used to do. And he goes on and gives a little list of that. They walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. May I pause for a second and say to those of you who name the name of Christ and are within the sound of my voice, if what I've just read defines your character and your conduct, you have never been born again. And you need to examine your heart. You see, the gospel, the message of the cross is, is, is the God-ordained, God-revealed, God-empowered means by which he saves man from all of the plagues of sin and all that plagues him, including the inevitable judgment of God. And by the power of God, the gospel is the good news. If I can put it this way, it's the good news collectively as well as individually. Let me explain to you what I mean here. Collectively, we know that our world is disintegrating. We see it in all of the economic systems, the government systems. We have terrorism, violence, wars, all of these things. Nations are controlled by fools and madmen with their finger on the trigger of nuclear weapons. The cultures of this world continue to sink into the abyss of immorality, of LGBTQ insanity, the most gross forms of immorality. Got people 
who are consumed by entitlement and greedy materialism. And all of this is a result of sin, a result of God's curse upon the earth and all who dwell within it. So sin basically affects all of us collectively, but also individually. The gospel is the good news because it is the power of God to save us from three things, from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and what I like to call the pollution of sin. Think about this. The penalty of sin is there, eternal judgment, because man has violated the law of God and therefore he is condemned. And it's the power of God and salvation that delivers us from the just wrath of God. Moreover, the gospel saves us from the power of sin. The Apostle Paul tells us that prior to coming to faith in Christ, we are slaves to sin. We have nothing to restrain our flesh within us. Worse yet, we are also under the dominion of Satan. Sinful man is an unwitting slave of Satan and his world system. Satan being the god of this world, the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And the problem individually here with the power of sin is that man cannot in himself, by himself, extricate himself from the tyranny of sin in himself, in his nature, and in the world around him. He is utterly dependent upon a power source apart from him. And that power source is God. But also the gospel saves us from the pollution of sin because indeed sin is a metastasizing evil. It results in degradation and disease and misery, hopelessness and death. In fact, Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1.4. It's the corruption that is in the world by lust. It's corruption. And we see it all around us in our culture. Sin's pollution is not just in the world, but again, it's in man's very nature. In Romans 7 verse 20, Paul says that sin dwells in me. In verse 21, he says, he speaks of that, the principle that evil is present in me. Even as a believer, we still are incarcerated in this unredeemed humanness. He goes on and he, he says that in verse 23 of Romans 7, that I, I see a different law in the members of my body. It's waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. It's like I can't get rid of it. How much more powerful for those who are unsaved. But by the power of God and salvation, we know that one day, according to Jude 24, we will all stand in the presence of his glory, what? Blameless with great what? Great joy. And according to Ephesians 5, we will have no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but we will be holy and blameless. And you're going to be ashamed of the gospel? This is the power of the gospel message that we proclaim. You're going to be ashamed of it? Oh, no, I'm not ashamed. But do you teach it to your children, moms, dads? Is this the priority of your heart? Do you put these things on Facebook? 
Do you look for every opportunity around the coffee, whatever it is, in your workplace to bring up the gospel? Yes, it will be foolishness to the perishing, but to the called, the elect of God, to us who are being saved, Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, I want to give you some more rich theology because I just want you to grab a hold of this. You may not be able to get it all in your notes, listen to it later, but you must understand these things. When we consider the power of God for salvation, we, we would all do well to remember some of the most basic principles to help us understand the biblical doctrine of salvation. It's called soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. First of all, number one, you must remember that man is totally unable to save himself. First of all, by reason of depravity. As I've said earlier, all that man is, all that man does are fundamentally offensive to a holy God. Isaiah 64, verse 6, all our righteousness, our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But not only are we unable to save ourselves by reason of depravity, but by reason of condemnation. You must remember that man enters this life already under the sentence of divine wrath because he committed sin in Adam, ultimately. We read about this in Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's for this reason in Ephesians 2.2 we are called the sons of disobedience. Verse 3 describes, this, describes us as people who are by nature children of wrath. So man is totally unable to save himself by reason of depravity, by reason of condemnation, but also by reason of alienation. You see, man is set in his nature to be in rebellion to God. Romans 8 and verse 7 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Unless God does something, this is how people are going to live out their lives, and they will blaspheme God in hell for eternity. Moreover, in Ephesians 4.18, we read how the unbeliever is darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God. There's the alienation. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So man is totally unable to save himself by reason of depravity, by reason of condemnation, by reason of alienation, but also by reason of a corrupt will. You see, apart from the Spirit's convicting work within the heart of a man. The will of a man or a woman apart from Christ is fully set to do evil. Every choice will ultimately be centered around themselves. They are self-centered, not God-centered. In fact, Romans 3 and verse 11 
The Spirit of God speaks to us through the Apostle Paul and tells us that there is none who seeks after God. And John makes this clear in chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, we are born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So again, beloved, we cannot save ourselves. If God doesn't do something, we will never be saved. And this is why we rejoice when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not singing 14 verses of just as I am to get you worked up in an emotional frenzy so you will finally come down to some phony altar and give your heart to Jesus. It is the work of God. Philippians 2.3 2.13 says, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, dear child of God, I hope you can see this. This is the power of God unto salvation. This is why we are not to be ashamed of it. It is God who is at work in you. And that work began before the foundations of the world. And it continues on throughout our life and all through eternity. You see, the indwelling of God in the believer is a constant theme that we see in Paul's writings. And it helps us understand why we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's God at work in you. The Jewish exodus from Egypt is the grand prototype of redemption that we see in Scripture. If we go back to Exodus chapter 29... Beginning in verse 45, we will get a sense of how God was at work and how he works in us and the redeemed. He says, and I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among, amongst them. I am the Lord their God. One of the most amazing realities in salvation, whenever I think about it, is to know that God has redeemed me that he might inhabit me. He has saved you that he might dwell within you. We saw this pictured in the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwelt in the midst of his nomadic people and then later on in the temple in Jerusalem. There was a permanent dwelling there in that place called the Holy of Holies. Where's the temple now? Where's the temple now? 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. Beloved, again, this is the power of God unto salvation. Think about this. By his power, he called you, although you were completely dead. You can't get any lower than dead, right? You were absolutely depraved, condemned, alienated, corrupted, and when you heard the message of the cross, it was absolute folly to you, total foolishness to you. And yet, by the power of his grace, he caused you to savingly believe and gave you the gift of faith. 
God redeemed you and indwelt you forever, which, by the way, blows apart. Just that one little concept blows apart this ridiculous idea that we can lose our salvation. But God, God not only indwells us, but think about us, about it. He says that he works in us. He is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. It's an amazing thought. He's constantly at work in us based upon his initiative. Even when I'm tempted to walk in a different direction, even when I'm not praying as I should, even when my, my thoughts are messed up because of my sinfulness that's still there. He's still at work. I am so thankful that he does that. Even when I'm disobedient, he's still at work. And what a blessing to know that he is working even when I am not. That's the power of God in salvation. And he works, it says, for his good pleasure, not mine, for his good pleasure. My good pleasure is so hopelessly warped by my own sin, it's no telling where I would end up. But God's purpose is not to keep me happy, but to conform me and you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he typically does this through trials, doesn't he? We've learned this over the years in our life, those of us who have walked with Christ, and it's for this reason that as we really examine Scripture and examine our lives, we see that God is more concerned about us persevering in the power of his all-sufficient grace than he is being for us to be rescued from our troubles. And this is accomplished by the power of God for salvation. You've probably all seen pictures. I've never actually been there, but you've seen pictures of the Sistine Chapel. Imagine that magnificent structure. Between 1508 and 1512, Michelangelo painted those astounding images of theology upon that ceiling. And history tells us that Michelangelo designed his own scaffolding from which he could work. And they say it was an ugly, flat, wooden platform on brackets built out from holes in the wall near the top of the windows. Rather than being built from the floor up, it was, being, it was built from up in the walls. And it held this massive structure because he wanted to make sure that it didn't distract from the worship services below. And they say there was a lightweight cloth screen that was suspended beneath the scaffolding to catch all of the drips of the plaster and all the dust and the splashes of paint and so forth. And I find it interesting, as I read about this, for four years, people would smell all of that stuff that was going on up above them, obnoxious odors. 
And they would look up and see this disgusting mess and wonder, what on earth is going on up there? But one day the artist's work was done. And all the ugly scaffolding was removed. And the ugly shroud that once concealed what was happening was taken away. And what the people could behold was the breathtaking reality of the artist's work. Perhaps one of the most glorious works of art in all of world history. Beloved, this is a picture of the church. This is a picture of your life and mine. By the power of God, he saves us. Then he indwells us and he constantly works within us. And a lot of times that works is not very pretty. In fact, it can be pretty ugly. Often it's an ugly mess, but one day the scaffolding of sanctification will be removed and we will be glorified. One day the master artist is going to reveal to the world what he has been doing all along. The masterpiece of his church. Romans 8 verse 19, the Apostle Paul says that the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Ephesians 6 beginning at verse 25, we read that, that God gave himself up for her, for his bridal church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might, catch this, present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Beloved, this is the power of God in salvation. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, it was God's sovereignty that ordained our salvation, and it was God's power that accomplished salvation. And you're going to be ashamed of it? I'm going to be ashamed of it? I'm going to try to redefine it? I'm going to try to soften the realities of it? May it never be. You see, salvation is accomplished from beginning to end in all of its parts by God alone. Salvation originates with the plan of God. It is made possible by the grace of God. It is brought to completion by the power of God. In fact, every aspect of our salvation from regeneration to glorification is ultimately the work of God alone. And please hear this. The supreme ruling motivation of God in salvation is not our glory, but his. Fundamentally, we are incidental to the whole thing. Therefore, if we're ashamed of the gospel in any way, we are robbing God of his glory. 
Not only did God receive glory by the dramatic display of his attributes on the cross, but also his glory will be enhanced throughout eternity by the blessedness of those who had been bound for hell but, but, but had been rescued by his grace and by his power. Well, I must move on. Not only is Paul reminding the saints of the power of, the, of salvation, the power of God for salvation, but secondly, the plan of God to receive salvation. Notice verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You see, to believe is to have faith. It, it, it's to trust or to rely, to cast ourselves completely upon someone or something for safekeeping to depend upon that which deserves, that which warrants our trust and dependence. And it's interesting in the Old Testament, and frankly in every age, the power, or I should say the, 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 the object, the proper object of, of saving faith is the revealed word of God. In the Old Testament we see that, Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God, in other words what God had said, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But then in the New Testament, the proper object of saving faith would include the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as recorded in the New Testament scriptures. And specifically, saving faith may be characterized by certainly a knowledge of, but also an assent to, as well as an unreserved reliance upon the finished redemptive work of Christ as revealed in scripture. This is God's plan for how we receive salvation. It's an amazing thing. This is the response demanded of men. You see, biblical faith has three components to it. First of all, there is, is an intellectual element to it. We must have knowledge. True saving faith is, is more than knowledge, but it always includes knowledge of the truth of who Christ is, the Lord Jesus Christ being the, the conscious object of our faith. You see, faith just doesn't operate in a vacuum. It has to have an object. God who cannot lie, who has spoken in his word, has revealed to us the glory of Christ. J.I. Packer put it this way, knowledge comes first. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? I want to be informed of a fact before I can possibly believe it. Faith cometh by hearing. We must hear first in order that, in order that we may know what is to be believed. Now, be careful. It is possible for a man or a woman to intellectually have knowledge of who Christ is, have knowledge of the historical facts of the gospel, and yet remain lost. I experience this a lot in academia. Well, why is that? How could they remain lost? Well, the answer is they refuse to entrust the, the eternal safekeeping of their souls to the one who lies at the very heart of those historical facts. In James 2, we are reminded of how 
It's so dangerous to have faith without works. In verse 19, he says, you believe God is one, you do well. Demons also believe and shudder. All right, so you can believe the facts about the gospel and not be saved. Acts 8, verse 13, Simon the magician, it says, believed, yet he was unrepentant. Matthew 7 tells us that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So this leads us to a second and third element of faith beyond knowledge. There must be an, an emotional assent and a volitional trust. Think about the emotional dimension, the emotional element, or what I would call assent. In other words, an emotional um, expression of agreement. We might put it this way. There's got to be just a gut reaction. When the truth is apprehended intellectually, it must resonate in the core of our being. It must be that which we sense in the core of our being as something that we cannot live without. There is a desperate longing that is there. Matthew 13, verse 23, we, we read about how the gospel seed at times will fall on good soil. And it says, when he hears the word and understands it, he bears fruit. But not everyone does this. Some of you have not done that. That's why it's so dangerous for you to be here week in and week out hearing the gospel, and yet you refuse to believe. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, the Apostle Paul speaks to those who, quote, with all the deception of wickedness. Think about that. With all the deception of wickedness, they will perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They refused to confess their sin. They refuse to believe in Christ to save them from their sins. So faith must include knowledge. We must know the truth. But there's also that emotional assent. If I can put it this, this way, friends, and those of you who know and love Christ understand this, we have to fall in love with the truth. We fall in love with the Savior so that he will be glorified in our life. And in order to embrace that truth and follow Christ, there must be thirdly that volitional element, that is trust, the act of the will. A person must make the conscious decision to reject the lies that he has trusted and depends solely upon the finished work of Christ. Not Christ plus what I do, but solely upon Christ. Now let me make this clear, saving faith does not involve three separate acts. It doesn't involve or I sh yes, it doesn't involve just you, you've got to know and love and trust the truth individually somehow. It involves the whole man and all of those come together. And it's not the act of faith that saves a man, even when that faith is focused on the correct object of faith. Rather, it is the object of faith that saves. It is Christ who saved. It is God the Father who has sent his Son who ministered the gospel. And by the power of the Spirit, we are given the gift of faith. And it is he who causes us to respond and act in faith. It is he who justifies the believer. So, dear Christian, this is the plan of God. 
to receive salvation. And apart from his plan, apart from his power, apart from his plan, we would never be saved. I, I want to also add saving faith does not originate. It does not originate from some sense experience. It originates from God. You know, people saw Jesus. They saw the apostles perform all of these amazing miracles, and yet most of them never believed. Remember in Luke, 7, or Luke 16, the rich man in hell is crying out for Father Abraham on behalf of his brother. He says, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Jesus said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. You see, we walk by faith, not by sight. In Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus said to the disciples, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Notice this now. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, saving faith does not originate in empirical evidence or historical investigation. It's not like, oh, if we could just find Noah's Ark, think of all the people that would get saved. Not going to happen. While historical evidence can and certainly does reinforce the credibility of the gospel record, it cannot in and of itself produce saving faith. Saving faith does not originate in human reason. Faith does not rest on the sufficiency of the empirical evidence. It's interesting, overwhelming evidence of creationism. In fact, the evolutionists want to run from those debates because they are so humiliated. And yet they refuse to believe, right? 1 Corinthians one twenty one, we read, God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. In other words, Christ crucified to save those who believe. Not through all of these evidences in apologetics, and I'm not downgrading that. Those things are good. But it's not like those people are going to see those things and now, oh, now I'm going to believe. So we better get all of our ducks in a row so that we can get people to believe in Jesus. No, it is the message preached that saves. 1 Corinthians 2.4, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So don't miss this, dear friends. Saving faith is the free gift of God. Romans 6.23, yet it is the sinner who really believes. It's an amazing thought, but ultimately faith did not originate in him. God, through his Holy Spirit, brings conviction of sin, and we begin to see the awful consequences of sin. And then, in this inscrutable mystery of God's sovereignty and salvation, he drives us to himself so that we voluntarily fall upon Christ for salvation, which refutes this idea of fatalism. Again, Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe. 
2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is one of the most humbling of all doctrines. And notice back to our text in verse 16. He describes this as that which affects everyone who believes. In other words, regardless of race or ethnicity or anything else, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's interesting, to the Jew first. Jesus told the Samaritans, the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews, John 4, 22. They were the original chosen people um, through whom he ordained the Savior to be born, to come into the world. They were the original custodians of divine truth, temporarily transferred now to the Gentile church. And they were the royal family, you might say, of the human race, the Jewish people, the recipients of the eternal covenants of which all other nations were strangers. And then when the Messiah came, you will recall that he came first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Originally, he first preached to them alone. And then in Matthew 10, Jesus instructed the 12 to avoid the Gentiles and the Samaritans. Rather, he says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 10, 6. But then Paul even reminded the Romans, Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, Romans 15, 8. And of course, Paul, however, was appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And that's why he went on to remind them in that text that God's grace and mercy extends to people outside of the covenant. In verse 9 of that text, he says, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament prophets. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. And I will sing to your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. There shall come the root of, from the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So indeed, salvation is available to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, to the Gentiles. And I'm so thankful that is written there because... I'm not from Jewish background. I'm from a Gentile background. Most of you are as well. We are all trophies of God's grace. So again, on what basis do we have to be ashamed of the gospel? And finally, not only do we see the power of the plan of God to receive it, but thirdly, the product of God in salvation. Notice what Paul says in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From faith to faith to faith to faith. This emphasizes not only the magnificent links of faith in the long chain of the redeemed that have lived down through redemptive history, but also the permanence of faith by which a person with genuine saving faith will persevere with righteousness that because of the power of God working within him, his righteousness is revealed in your faith, in your faith, in your faith, in your faith, my faith, and on and on it goes. And what is the righteousness of God? It's interesting. This is a key concept in this whole epistle. In fact, we, we see that Paul uses this, this phrase 35 times in this epistle alone. 
You see, this is the product of God in salvation. This is what act, is activated by faith. It is that righteousness that comes from God and one that satisfies his justice, the justice that can only be accomplished through Christ. You see, man has a real problem, doesn't he? I mean, think about it. How can sinful man be right with a holy God? How can that happen? Psalm 143.2, David says, In thy sight no man living is righteous. We got a serious problem. God is the judge. Man is the defendant. It's like a courtroom. Now, God's standard is perfect. His righteousness is perfect. He himself is perfect. There are only two possible ways to meet the demands of God's law. One way is to keep the law perfectly in all of its parts. I know all of you pretty well. You haven't done it, and I assure you I haven't done it. Nobody has, nor can we. The other thing is to pay the penalty for breaking that law and thus offending the lawgiver. Well, the former, keeping the law perfect, was accomplished by one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, Christ on the cross was the all-sufficient and infinite sacrifice, holy and pure, perfectly righteous, who died in our stead. He is the one that voluntarily satisfied all of the demands of the broken law, and he fully propitiated or, or fully satisfied the offended holiness of God. At salvation, then, the sinner appropriates that payment that Christ made on the cross, that finished work, and that's why in Galatians 2.16 we, we read, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified, in other words, declared righteous, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So the sinner is justified by the death of Christ. That is the basis of our justification. And then by faith, that is appropriated in justification. And what Paul is saying here in verse 17 is that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from beginning to end, on and on. This refers to the righteousness of Christ that is based upon the substitutionary atonement on the cross that allows God to impute to the sinner Christ's righteousness, and he does this by his saving grace. So how does this become the sinner's own possession? by means of God-given faith. And it's important to understand, this isn't just legal fiction. God doesn't just declare righteous those who are really guilty and really wicked. That's not what he's doing. Rather, justification is based upon our union with Christ. God declares the believer to be wholly righteous because he sees us forever hidden in his beloved son. And thus, that believer is in fact righteous in the sight of a holy God, a holy, all-knowing, righteous God. Beloved, this is the glory of salvation. 
we have been united with Christ. Don't think of the Savior as living outside of you, but rather remember that he is the one that dwells within you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Why? Because he's in Christ. 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1.4, we are partakers of the divine nature. Beloved, we have an intimate union, a oneness with Christ. And for this reason, to those who truly know and love Christ, he becomes that soul-satisfying desire of our heart. Our union with Christ is the basis of salvation and all of its blessings because all of those things come from him. And God doesn't see our sin anymore but the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, in Scripture, we see how we are described as having been crucified with Christ. We, have, we were dead with Christ. We were buried with him. We were raised up together in Christ. We are seated together in the heavenly places in Christ. We are hid with Christ in God, and on and on it goes. And because of that union with Christ, there is now no condemnation because we are in Christ. In Christ, we are free from the law. We possess the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, we have wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. The scriptures tell us that we are complete in him. The dead in Christ shall rise. In Galatians 3.28, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And all of these astonishing realities are implied in Paul's statement pertaining to the product of our salvation. Again, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And for this reason, Paul would later on write in Romans 4, beginning in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but is what is due. But, in verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. My, what a comfort this must have been to those beleaguered saints, those persecuted saints there in Rome. Because of the gospel, the Jews were, were freed from the bondage of the law. Because of the gospel, the Gentiles were freed from the bondage of idols, from the bondage of their sin. God knew they needed this encouragement, and therefore he gave them these truths. Now, as we close this morning, I'm reminded of a story in the ruins of ancient Rome Archaeologists excavated a very revealing painting that captured the prevailing attitude of the Christians of that day and those that looked at them. There was a picture carved in plaster that depicts a donkey hanging on a cross with a slave bowing down before it. You can go online and see it. And under it is an inscription in Greek that reads, Alexaminas worships his God, mocking anyone that would worship in such a way. Well, back then, even as it is today, it was hard to present the gospel, to live the gospel. 
But Paul was saying, don't be ashamed of it. And frankly, I've just scratched the surface of some of the reasons why not to be ashamed of it. Remember that it is the power of God for salvation. There's a plan of God to receive salvation. There's products of God in salvation. And dear friends, if if God is not the all-consuming desire of your heart, if your life orbits around things other than the glory of God, you're ashamed of the gospel. If you've embraced wokeism or some of these other phony gospels, you're ashamed of the gospel. If the priority of your life is to live for yourself, you're ashamed of the gospel. If you have no appetite for the word of God, you have no hungering and thirsting for righteousness, somehow the gospel's just not that big of a deal for you. If you're a husband that does not shepherd his wife, to help her not only understand the gospel, but live it out, and to be an example of that for her and for the children, you're ashamed of the gospel. If you're a wife that has embraced feminism and some of these other worldly things, you're ashamed of the gospel. You're looking for something else because the gospel's not enough. If you're a mother who makes no effort to teach her children the gospel, you're ashamed of the gospel. And if you're a young person that's in love with all this stuff in the world, and you've been caught up in especially the urban culture, and that becomes the priority of your life, the object of your desires, you're ashamed of the gospel. Oh, dear friends, may we not be a people ashamed of the gospel. We need it every day of our life. And let's rejoice in that and be bold for the glory of Christ and for all that he will do in and through us, this side of glory and for eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these amazing truths And certainly there are so many others that we could describe, but Father, just with the feeble expression of what I have rehearsed this morning, we we find ourselves just, just overwhelmed with what you have done, are doing, and will do. So Lord, may what we have heard today from your word bear much fruit for our good and for your glory. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.